The Hong Kong 2016 Legislative Council elections are fast approaching. To make sure you can take part in Hong Kong's future, please make sure you have registered to vote. Hi, my name is Robbie McRobbie, and I'm the General Manager of Operations and Commercial at the Hong Kong Rugby Union. And I'll be voting in this year's elections because everyone deserves to have their voice heard, even rugby players. To register, please visit voterregistration.gov.hk or call two eight nine one one zero zero one. Once again, that's voterregistration.gov.hk. A look at the latest on the weather front: cloudy with showers and a few squally thunderstorms. Coastal fog can be expected uh, at first. A maximum today, temperature-wise, of around 26 degrees uh, by this afternoon. Uh, moderate southerly winds, fresher times, and the outlook: rain will be heavier times tomorrow. Still rainy over the following couple of days. A latest air temperature reading: we have 23 degrees Celsius, a relative humidity of. Uh, 92%. Time now, 29 minutes before 9 o'clock. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to the seventh Beers for Bacon show with me, Jason Black. Today I thought we'd explore another great early morning essential, besides bacon of course, real deal coffee. So I've got two renowned coffee experts who take different approaches talking about the best beverage ever. Because coffee is also used in the kitchen, and I don't just mean in desserts, I've invited Chef Connor Beach to chat to us too. Our resident wine nomad, JC Viennes, will be speaking to us from Milan. And I got Peggy Chan, the owner of Grassroots Pantry, to test our gadget this week. I have a must-get book for you this week. And for our alphabet soup, I'm all the way up to the letter I. And because the weather's warming up, I thought I'd share a few dishes that are best eaten cold. The reason I'm sending you my voice again from Italy is because, as you know, last week I was at a wine competition. And in the last four days, I was actually at a wine exhibition. Uh, this is an exhibition called Vinitali. It's actually the biggest wine fair in the world. I mean, imagine this. There were 130,000 visitors 4,500 exhibitors. So believe me, Jason, there was so much wine to taste over there that it was impossible to taste everything. And it's a fair that is so busy, so gigantic. It's an amazing fair. This is really a testament of how Italy is absolutely a treasure trove of wine, full of diversity, full of styles, full of producers, and so many things to discover. During that fair, we also went to another place called Suma. And this is actually a private wine fair that is organized by a very small producer called Alois Lagader. Alois is a special person. He grows his vines biodynamically. And he grows them in the mountains of uh, Trentino. And it's a beautiful region. And we decided to go there because the producers are friends of Alois. And... Uh, they are looking for a more quiet environment with perhaps a little bit less people and uh, perhaps uh, an opportunity to establish uh, close contacts with, um, with the buyers and the wine lovers. 
and it was a great experience because the building there is a, it's a very very old building that was built actually in the first century after Christ and the atmosphere there feels like going back in time it feels not only going back in time but it also feels like going back in history and the tasting was beautiful we were talking to the suppliers and the types of wines we had were uh, very very close to the territory very close to the philosophy of the winemakers that we could actually feel these kind of wines so for me as you know i have two different attitude when it comes to wine first it's about style and second it's about quality and as you know very well i explained to you in another show that style for me is very very important because we need to understand uh, what was the objective of the winemaker but a big part of the style is also the personality of the person behind the wine and when you feel when you meet this winemaker and you feel the person very often you actually can feel the place and when you actually visit a place as beautiful as Trentino you can actually feel the beauty of the wine uh, the beauty of the place behind the wine and this is really what uh, makes me very emotional about wine and drives my passion really actually maybe the mood is a little bit too great right now because I was having some aperitivo and, and, and perhaps you heard that before the Italians they really understand the art of the aperitif and so I had this drink called the Yugo very interesting because normally in Italy right now uh, the fashion is the Aperol Spritz so the Aperol Spritz is very easy they take the Prosecco and they take a liqueur called the Aperol it's an orange color liqueur quite sweet, quite bitter at the same time it's quite quite spicy and put ice, a little bit of soda water and they drink this and enjoy themselves and it's an absolutely beautiful drink but my Yugo was different my Yugo was also Prosecco and they put a French liqueur called Saint-Germain. Frankly speaking, I never heard of it before, but uh, it appeared to be quite interesting, so I decided to order this. And there was another liqueur called Fiore di Sambucco, which is uh, very similar to Sambuca and full of mint they put in, the, in this drink with uh, some fruits inside. And so I started to drink this very floral, very perfumed, absolutely wonderful. And it made me in such a good mood. And good mood is what the Italians are all about. And this is what I love. Imagine this, Jason. I'm sitting there on a terrace, watching people go by, watching the world go by. And what I noticed from the corner of my eyes is that you have this group of boys on one side and you have this group of girls on the other side. Each one had different drinks. Uh, one had Aperol Spritz, as I told you. Others had other drinks. But they were all watching each other, smiling at each other, obviously raising the tension, raising the mood and everybody was such in an ebullient feeling that they were loud voices and laughs and it was a wonderful moment That was our wine whisperer JCVNs He's back in Hong Kong next week and will join us with more wines and wonderful tales all about Alsace now, 
For the last six shows, we've had very little success with our gadgets. Despite the promises of them saving time and doing the job better than a knife in a pair of hands, most of the gadgets that we've had have taken longer to do the job, and in a lot of cases, they've ended up wasting more of the product than it's been worth. Greg Wami shows Guacamole Gate, Neil Tomes and the Egg Pricker, Jack Carson getting his Cajun groove on with a stripper of herbs. They all showed promise, but all failed miserably. Unable to resist the temptation of yet another gadget that promised to be of multiple use, I took one along to Peggy Chan to see if her delicate touch would bring us some gadget success. So it's technically, if anyone knows what a uh, melon baller is, <laughs> it's a stick with a little half-shaped sphere that's hollow, and uh, technically you can scoop it into like melons, apples, whatever, watermelons, um, and then create this circular sphere. Uh, but this one has an outer layer of, uh, a, I don't know what it is, it looks like, you know, when, you, when people are at the park and they're blowing bubbles. It looks like that. Uh, it's basically, yeah, interesting. It's called a Meyer Fruit Peeler Multifunctional Tool. <laughs> New. <laughs> oh, 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 it actually comes off this little piper. So this is, should be too. I have no idea, honestly. So with this balloon ring type of thing, I'm technically, I technically can just apparently peel off melon so I don't think it actually works because it's literally plastic and it's not sharp at all how am I supposed to peel off this skin of the honeydew melon no it doesn't work all right so with the melon scooper thing okay I would have just gotten myself a melon baller um, to rate this out of 10 for the melon scooper um, melon baller <laughs> Yeah, it's good. I mean, we've always used that in kitchens, uh, so a good 9 out of 10. Whereas this ring tool, technically it's shit, so I, <laughs> I'd probably, you know, use it at the park or something <laughs> and try to blow balloons out of it, but it really does not do anything. Thanks, Peggy. Yet another unsuccessful gadget with fair commentary at the end. Now, we're globetrotting a little bit today with JC in Italy, one of our baristas in South Africa, and the other a Melbourne-trained Japanese guy based in Hong Kong. So it won't come to you as a surprise then that I chose a Spanish book written for the American kitchen just to keep you on your toes. Made in Spain, Spanish Dishes for the American Kitchen by Jose Andres is a pretty cool book, actually, and I've got several of his books. This one, just like the others, didn't disappoint. Again, based on a TV show, the recipes reflect the regions of Spain and their prominent dishes featuring ingredients and methods of preparation. They're easy to follow and easy to prepare, opening the less-than-experienced home cook up to a fantastic repertoire of new flavors and techniques. Alternate ingredients are often provided for those who live outside of the major metropolitan areas, and the tips provided really are sound. The sections of the book are laid out well, 
broken into salads, soups, snacks, and then by protein, allowing you to quickly decide what you feel like cooking. The recipes are easily scalable, so it's a great book to work with if you're entertaining. The photography is brilliant, and certainly each dish is appetizing and inspiring enough to try. If you want to enjoy the flavors of Spain, brought to you by a chef who's worked at all levels of Spanish cuisine, be it homestyle cooking or even that of Ferran Adria, the books of Jose Andres are certainly worth looking at, and this is one I recommend you buy for your bookshelf. Now, coffee has become a way of life for me, especially. Every day starts with at least two cups, and usually has a third cup sneaked in just before lunch. I really love it, but not one of those aficionado types who rave on about the fruitiness of this bean versus the acidity of the other. For me, it has to be a great cup of coffee, of course, and definitely not from one of those ghastly chains that serve triple mocha chocolate hazelnut fudge lattes. More importantly. It's part of my routine, and like the most of us, I think convenience plays a big role in where we choose to drink coffee. My favorite happens to be on the way to the office, and it's a minute walk from my shoebox apartment. It opens at exactly the right time for my second cup of the day. I chat to the same people, drink the same style of coffee, and for me, the universe feels in place. I like the feeling of community with people who start their day. The same way, maybe coffee shops are just meeting places full of people who are creatures of habit. Drinkers of coffee certainly differ from purveyors and makers of it. Independent coffee shops are usually run by passionate individuals who love every aspect of the process, and some go to extraordinary lengths to deliver a great cup. They take care of it from the purchase to pour, and some of them even roast their beans in house. Some rely on others trusting their methods and following the recipes to the letter. Today, I chatted to two baristas who follow two different methods in two different countries, but with coffee equally as good. On my recent trip to South Africa, I was lucky to chat to Craig Charity, the South African barista champion and contestant in last year's World Championships. His philosophy is very much like that of a chef: provenance of the ingredient, do as much of the work in house as you can, and understand every step along the way. All I want is a proper cup of coffee made in a proper cup of coffee pot. I may be off my dot, but I want a proper coffee in a proper cup of pot. Iron coffee pots and tin coffee pots—they are no use to me. If I can't have a proper cup of coffee, yeah, for me, coffee is very similar to whiskey, wine, and 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 craft beer. It's the ability to manipulate flavor with with science, technology, and art. So, from from green bean to cup, I control a lot of it. There's still a lot we don't understand, but uh, we. We get our green beans in from sustainable farms throughout the world, and we would roast that on roasters that we customized and log it as much as we can, so we could try and understand exactly what's happening in the bean from a moisture loss to what what chemical reactions are happening at different degrees. And then we we use lumberizable machines as well, which are really really temperature stable, which helps us hone in on the final product. So yeah, I suppose we were involved a lot. But there's, there's a lot before me that I don't get to get to play with. And how much of um, the actual making of coffee comes down to the barista? It's a very hard question to answer. I think it's like 100% down to the barista, and 100% down to the machine, and 100% down to the grinder, and 100% down to the coffee, and 100% down to the water. And so, I think for me, it's I don't. 
I think it's actually more the barista. I think if if you've got a really, really, really good barista on a pretty average machine, he could probably make something amazing for you. Maybe not super consistently throughout the day, but he can definitely do it. Um, obviously, the machinery helps us by taking variables away that we would normally mess up. We buy fresh crop coffee and we use it within like try to use it within six months from from farm. Um, the roasting process takes anything between like eight and 12, 14 minutes. It's not very really quick, but it's controlling what happens in that time is important. If you go if you go a lot further than that, you you could start baking the roast and just it starts to taste flat. So it's pretty much like a good steak, I'd imagine. It's it's you don't really want that steak sitting on the on the on the grill for like a very very long time, even under low heat, because you just start. The longer it's on there, the more you change it from what it could have tasted like to anything bland to carbon so it's important to to not well my view on coffee is that coffee has almost infinite possibility from a chemical perspective and the more you change it the more you change it for the worse and with the location of South Africa being pretty much quite far from everywhere um, how have you managed to source beans internationally is it uh, have you traveled to the place yeah. to find the beans yeah I've, I haven't been to very many I've been to I've been to Guatemala and Burundi um, but just the coffee the coffee industry is a pretty small industry still even worldwide it's big but there's it's it is very it is small in a way and I've gotten to know quite a lot of people around the world and some of are from local suppliers here and I, and I I put my trust in them, and I'll taste with their samples, and I'll buy from them. And uh, Charlie Dennison's a very good friend of mine. He's uh, he brings some of our beans in, and uh, he sources from from Africa and Colombia. And um, so when I when I competed in the World Champs in 20, was it 2013, I think, um, I flew to Guatemala and I met the farmer, and I sort of that's how I got those beans. Being a roaster as well as a barista and a, and a machine technician, I get to be involved with a lot of the process. I don't control um, a lot of the steps before me, but the ability to know the farmers, the ability to to present the final product, and to sort of know the story of how it got from A to to Z, is that is quite a privilege. That was Craig Charity, the owner of Lineage Coffee in Hillcrest, South Africa. Now. Back in Hong Kong and after much persuasion, I got the owner and barista of my favorite coffee shop to chat about the coffee he serves. Now, whilst he has the same passion when it comes to making coffee, unlike Craig, he prefers to leave the sourcing of beans, the roasting and the recipes to his suppliers in Melbourne. In typical Japanese fashion, he makes coffee to decimal point precision, striving to extract the perfect cup from every individually ground portion. Hi, I am Hikaru, Blue Bros Coffee owner. Uh, we start coffee shop uh, two years ago and uh, now we serving specialty coffee to the customer. Uh, we use coffee bean from uh, market land uh, which is in Melbourne. And I really like this coffee bean because uh, they treat coffee as like wine so the coffee got many flavor so at the moment we use seasonal espresso for 
espresso base, uh, which uh, is uh, 70% Brazil and also 30% of Bolivia. Yeah. And do you um, change the way you make coffee day by day depending on temperature? Yes, yes. Like in morning time, uh, before open the shop, Actually, we don't open the window, so everything is stable. So we just make coffee as like usual. But once we open the window, maybe everything has changed, like temperature and also the humidity is totally different. So the shot, espresso shot, become like slower. So we need to change the grind size. And also sometimes we need to change the temperature of espresso machine as well. Yeah. Okay. But we don't change like coffee beans amount. Yeah. We usually use the same amount of espresso bean and then uh, sometimes we change the extraction time and also the espresso amount. And what is the shelf life of the coffee that you use? We usually finish coffee being within 10 days from roasting because uh, we would like to use fresh bean. Like when, when I brew the fresh coffee bean, there are so many nice aroma and also the fruity flavor because our roasting profile is really light roast to medium roast. So there are so many good acidity coming out on the espresso. So, uh, but if we use like old bean, like uh, means aged bean, uh, the taste totally different from fresh bean, like less acidity, but like not many fruity flavor. Describe how you make a cappuccino. Uh, we usually use double shot of espresso because the coffee taste is very, very rich. If we use single shot for the cappuccino, it's nice, but maybe not many coffee flavor. So we usually use double shot. And then uh, the cup is not big. Uh, we use like six ounce cup, which is uh, 180 ml. So the total amount of espresso is like around 40 to 42 gram and then uh, 120 gram it's gonna be milk yeah, and then that we care about the temperature of the milk because uh, if we make hot milk then it's really hard to feel coffee flavor and also the milk is not tasty so we usually uh, make cappuccino around 60 degree, uh, which is more sweeter and the crema is really, really smooth, like very silky. So we care about temperature and also good extraction of espresso for cappuccino. Thank you, Hikaru-san. I'll see you for a coffee in a little bit. Before dishing up a bowl full of alphabet soup today, I thought I'd share a few tips for two of my favorite chilled beef dishes, carpaccio and steak tartare. They're both delicious and certainly not for people who sit on the fence when it comes to eating their food cooked or raw. As they're not cooked, quality is vital and if you're going to try them, I suggest you buy your beef from a reputable butcher and certainly tell him that you're planning to eat it raw. 
I've always enjoyed the method of steak tartare from my favorite bistro in the world, Balthazar, New York. It includes a very well-seasoned mayonnaise and emits the raw egg yolk. It's a fair compromise for me, though when I lived in Paris, I was more than happy with the traditional version, mixing in the garnishes myself, including that yolk. Maybe it was just the location that made it seem appropriate at the time. When making steak tartare, it's important to have the garnishes cut to the right size and also in the right proportions. You want the balance perfect. Too much anchovy and it ruins the beef. Not enough acidity and it'll leave your palate feeling fatty. Too much shallot and you'll regret it for the rest of the day. For entertaining, I suggest mixing all of the ingredients of steak tartare together in the kitchen and then serving it prepared. At least then you'll know that everybody will have a perfectly balanced version. For carpaccio, the secret is slicing the beef thin enough and getting the acidity right in the mayonnaise. Good quality parmesan, some peppery rocket and a drizzle of fruity olive oil is all you need. The beef needs to be really cold when you slice it. It just makes your job easier. And you should serve it right after slicing to stop the beef turning brown. I've popped the recipes up on our Facebook page for you already, so give them a go. I is the letter in today's alphabet soup and it was much more difficult than you can imagine. is for Italian. Now that's pretty obvious, but when one says Italian sausage, you should expect two versions, one hot and one sweet. Both are flavored with garlic and fennel and sold in fat, juicy links. Sticking with Italian for a second, I is also for involtini, thin slices of meat that are stuffed, then rolled before being grilled or baked. Unusually, I is for isinglass, something that I've never seen before, which is apparently a gelatin that's made from fish viscera. For a tongue twisting into our alphabet soup, I is for Iplemagronen, a Swiss speciality of macaroni, potatoes, onions, cheese, and cream. Even though I probably pronounced it wrong, it sounds like a dish I'd be all over in a second. So, let's see if we can bring all of the elements of today's show together before we end and chat to Chef Connor Beach of the contemporary Balinese restaurant Tree about using coffee in savory dishes. Where do you use coffee in your dishes in the restaurant? We use coffee in, besides desserts, we use coffee in a beef dish. Um, It's a Angus short rib, slow cooked for 48 hours, and then rolled in coffee, black pepper, toasted coriander, and grilled while basting with a sweet and spicy chili soy sauce. It's not traditionally something that people imagine in in savory dishes. Why have you added it? And is, was there any danger of, say, coffee, um, it becoming bitter or anything like that? And how do you avoid it? The, the bitterness is sort of a... It's a positive in this dish. The, it brings out some of the, the meaty earthiness from the, the beef and the two play off of each other. And the sweet and spicy from the soy sauce uh, sort of brings the whole thing together. So it's not like you're making an espresso and then using it as a marinade of sorts. You're actually taking the beans and grinding them and doing it as an as a actual rough paste? Uh, we are. It's, it's a dry rub, I would say. It's black pepper, coriander, and coffee mixed together. And it's just rolled on the beef. And is the, is the coffee, can you actually taste it? Yes. All right. You might not be able to identify it if I didn't tell you it was coffee, but there's something in the back of your mind saying, I know that taste, what is it? It's not the first time that coffee and um, 
beef have been used together. I've seen it in examples before, but it's the first time I've seen it um, used with um, foods from Bali and Indonesia in particular. What other dishes do you know from the region that also use coffee? So we never found sort of a, a traditional recipe that relies on coffee, but did find a restaurant a recipe out of uh, Western Bali that uses the coffee leaves. Uh, it's sort of a, a jejeruka, shredded salad uh, with a spiced coconut milk dressing. Uh, and this one uses baby bees. They um, raid beehives, take out the honeycomb that still have the baby bees inside without any stingers on them yet. They boil them for about 10 to 12 minutes and then take out the bees and chop them up and mix them with the spiced coconut dressing and blanched shredded coffee leaves. Do you think a dish like this um, would translate in Hong Kong? And do you think it would be something that would be successful on a menu? If I could find the bees, I would definitely give it a try. Thanks, Connor. That's a wrap. Next week, we'll be talking all things French on the Beers for Bacon show. Until then, au revoir. And of course, don't forget to join Chef Jason Black next week at the same time for another Bees for Bacon show. You can find all of today's recipes on his Facebook page, Bee is for Bacon, on RTHK3. The program was produced by Phil Whelan. This Sunday morning on RTHK Radio 3, join me, Colin Aitchison, for Vintage Chart Toppers. The song is ended, but the melody lingers on. Here we're going to look at the hits, those million record sellers from the years the 1920s to 1950s. These were the years when you had to get out of your chair, change the needle and get some exercise whitening up the gramophone, not forgetting to turn the record over. There'll be a few memories and a few ha-ha laughs. That's the Vintage Chart Toppers, Sunday morning, 8.30, here on Radio 3. Lingers on. Not to be missed. Weather-wise, cloudy with showers, a few squally thunderstorms, in fact... More rain over the next few days. Today, today's maximum around 26 degrees. Uh, winds moderate southerly, fresh at times. Currently, 24 humidity, 92%.